Welcome to episode 12 of the Camerosity Podcast, the first ever open source film photography podcast. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and as always from Gainesville, Florida, Mr. Anthony Rue. Have you got any snow there yet, Anthony? No, but it, it did go down to 45 degrees. Oh man, what do you do? Uh, you know, the, the, the armadillos were, were shivering out there. <laughs> uh, joining us once again from Yellow Springs, Ohio, Mr. Paul Reibold. How you doing there, Paul? Good, Mike, good. And finally, all the way from Sydney, Australia, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. How are things in the land down under? I bought some bread from a man in Brussels. He was six foot four and full of muscle. I said, do you speak my language? He just smiled and gave me a Vegemite sandwich. Uh, are you okay there, Theo? You don't sound like yourself. This is how I talk. This is Theo from Sydney, Australia. Crikey. Foster's. Australian for beer. Well, okay then. As always, the call lines are open and anyone can join in the discussion. We've been getting more and more great feedback from our listeners, which we greatly appreciate because unlike other podcasts, we have no scripts. Each of us sign into Zoom without any idea of how the conversation will go. So we need you to steer us so we won't spend another whole episode talking about Miranda's again. Looking through some of the feedback we've had uh, from last week, we had Eric Reese, who said this podcast is bad for my gas. He bought a Miranda D. Uh, I think, Theo, didn't you buy a Miranda too? Yes, my gas made me buy a Miranda. It is very nice. I like it. That's not a knife. This is a knife. Michael Lawrence said, another great show. I keep meaning to say, whenever I hear the intro, I think we're being treated to a 38 special tune. Uncanny resemblance. Mario Piper said he enjoyed listening to the show and appreciates us sharing all the images of cameras we talk about on the Camerosity Facebook page. And although Mario doesn't mention it, we do have it on our Instagram page, too. Uh, and finally, Ira Cohen said, although he arrived late last week, he thought the podcast was great. Uh, we have three people in the waiting room, so let me just click the admit button here and send as many people as I can in. Actually, four people as I'm speaking, so we're just going to dump everybody in here all at once and see whose Zoom audio works the best. Okay, we have Mario, Mark, Michael Gossett, and Michael Kaplan. We have all M's who have joined. Uh, can everybody hear us? Uh, yep. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. All right. I am excited to have so many great guests this week. Uh, and ironically, Mario Piper is one of the people who left us some feedback from last week's show, and he happens to be here. I swear, people, this is not planned. Of the guests, though, I am most eager to hear from Mike Gossett. We promised a couple weeks ago that we would have Mike on a follow-up episode, and he would show us his bank statement of how many cameras he ended up buying as a result of that episode. So, Mike, do you want to take it away and, and let us know what you've purchased? Yeah, I got a, a B2 Speedex, and um, I'm kind of shocked at how tiny it is. I was expecting something much larger. So, Did you get it from some seedy Russian seller or something? <laughs> No, I found Paul's eBay store, and um, oh, when I saw a... it said Yellow Springs. I was like, oh, it has to be his. <laughs> and look, we happen to have the guy he bought the camera from on the show. Back. Yeah, we're playing without a net here. I mean, if it'll leave yeah. light, I don't know what I would do. So, so Mike Novak was worried that we recommended a SpeedX, but that it was going to be uh, frozen up with the green gunk. Is it a focus working on that one? Yeah, I was just testing it. It goes all the way from uh, infinity to minimum focus. <laughs> Fantastic. So you haven't had a chance to shoot it yet, but so far you seem to be pretty happy with it? Yeah, I'm getting ready to order some uh, Ilford um, HP5, I think, to try through it. Yeah, generally when I shoot a camera for the first time, I like to stick to like 
50, 100, 125 speed films. I usually don't like to push cameras, uh, even if I believe that they're in good working order, because, you know, 100, 1, 125th seems to be the speeds that pretty much any shutter, no matter what its condition, can still reliably fire at. I mean, not always, but but usually you're pretty safe at those speeds. And, and then once you have that experience of seeing what the camera's doing, you can go from there. Uh, Mario, welcome yeah. to the show. Uh, or welcome back, I should say. Uh, it's good Thank to you. have you back. Uh, we Before I, I let you into the waiting room, I read one of your comments you posted on the Camerosity page as, as feedback from previous episodes. So uh, I did that not realizing you'd be joining us. So welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Awesome. Michael Kaplan. How you doing there, Mike? Okay, guys. How you doing? All right. Well, welcome to the show. Um, Thanks. I, I'm curious to hear what kind of uh, recent pickups you've had and if we've affected your gas at all. Always. <laughs> um, yeah. I uh, Let's see. What did I, what do I have here? Let's see. Uh, an Agfa Ambi Select. Oh, okay. Yeah. And actually, uh, this is in really nice condition and um, I'm looking forward to giving this a try. Uh, usually you don't see the the window here in such nice condition, but um, it's got all the graphics and all the text and everything like that. So came with the um, the 90 and uh, this is the 50. For some reason, it came with two 50s. I, I don't know why. Um, it's kind of odd, actually, that a person would have uh, two 50s in a kit, but maybe they just kind of came across another one along the way. Um, so I'm going to keep my eyes open for the 35. And this one, this is, you know, I, I got to say, I, I have, I guess I'm, I'm a little over maybe 300, 350 cameras now. And, wow. um, you know, everyone amazes me. Everyone just, I mean, I'm just like, I come in, I told, I told Anthony this, I come into my room and I just stand and I just look at them sometimes. And sometimes I just kind of turn around in a circle and just sort of <laughs> soak them all in. Um, but this showed up the other day, and to tell you the truth, this is probably one of the most beautiful cameras I have ever seen. This is the Contessa, which I'm, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. The Zeiss Icon uh, Contessa yeah, 35, and, yeah. And they, this, ma they made many Contessas. This, this camera, um, it's in lovely condition, and it's, it just stuns me. The yeah. quality of it, the, the look, the aesthetic, the way that it feels, the... Um, the operation, uh, everything. And, um, you know, I haven't taken it out yet, but uh, honestly, you know, I've just been sort of holding this and kind of turning it over in my hands and, um, it, it's a stunner. It really is. So I was, um, I was really pleased. Um, I got a, a, a I'd say a pretty good deal on it and the condition of it was just, I mean, the case, it doesn't look like it's really been used. Does um, the meter work on it? The meter works on it. Wow, yep. that's that's and, uncommon because most yeah. of the ones I've come across have dead meters. Yeah, and it's it's the it's these models, it's these cameras that that have the cover over the selenium meter that you find, like my Anscomat. Same thing. The meter works because mm -hmm. you know it's got this protection, um, and I think in in a lot of cases um, you find uh, success in that in that way. But this is just a, this is just. That sort of blows me away. I've you know? looked after that camera for quite a while. It's you know, in a way, when you look at it, it's it's really the uh, the culmination of the Super Iconta line with the design, with the uh, the two part rangefinder that's attached to the lens and the front element, and mm -hmm. and it's just like you know, it's a it's a it's a design 
styling cue that began in the 1930s and uh you know it culminated with that camera and it's just like it's really just luscious in its design that was dice icon's answer to the retina and uh in, in a way it's more german even than the retina is in terms of its complexity it's a wonderful camera <laughs> uh so wonderful in fact that the first time I reviewed one, the, the version I had was in not the best of working order. So I, I had some critical comments of it. And a reader of my site was so unhappy with the that I reviewed a camera that wasn't in perfect working order. He asked for my address and sent me his and said, I demand that you re-review this camera. So I did uh, with a, like yours, from what it sounds like, a mint perfect working copy and and you're right they are they are fantastic it's it's lovely and i and i kind of saw it um when i got it i realized it was sort of the competition for the veto three i mean they came out in sort of the same amount of time they're both 35 35 millimeter folders and um but this one i think it blows the veto three away honestly just in terms of the 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 way that it looks the the machining of it um just everything it's really cool yeah special in, in defense of the Vito three, Ultron versus yeah, Tessar. Yeah, you do you do get the you do get the added the Ultron is an F two, whereas they they didn't um, go any faster than two point eight on the uh, Contessa. But but and, and, to and be fair, a, they're, they're both great cameras. And and there's a there's a there's a simplicity. You know, even though it's based on the prominent and it has the same prominent top plate. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's uh, it's a very simple camera and it's easy to get repaired. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that the, 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 yeah, you know, the old, or the, uh, the Vito three has that in its favor. Uh, that's true. I agree. I've always liked yeah. the, the, the idea that it, that it shared, uh, so many of the components with the prominent, it was sort of like a, um, like a cousin or a brother to that camera. Right. Um, yeah. I agree. If you could take the Ultron off and put it on the, <laughs> <laughs> then you'd have a camera. I just stick okay. it on with some glue. That'll be fine. <laughs> And and Mark, uh, repeat uh, guest on the show. Welcome back. Um, full disclosure: I do talk to Mark frequently offline, so I, I sometimes know the answers to the questions I'm going to ask him. But uh, Mark, welcome back. Uh, have you had any recent pickups you'd like to talk about? Yeah, two actually. Uh, one of them is this Alka 16, which is a naming rebrand of the Adixa 16. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, a detachable uh, light meter on it. And the other one I think you know about too, this is the, the Petrie Penta, uh, which unfortunately has bad um, curtains on it. So I may attempt a repair, which will be my first attempt at doing curtains. So it might actually be curtains for this camera. <laughs> Mark, does that have the Orico uh, 2 on it? 50 millimeter 2? This is... Doesn't say... Uh, Usually they're F2s. It's an F2, but it doesn't say Rico on it, but it just says Petri Automatic F2, 55 millimeter. Yeah, Mark's, oh. Mark's is the, bay, the bayonet version. Yeah. Not, it's the not 55, the not the 50. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah they, they did the screw mount. They, Petri's funny in that their first SLR used the M42 screw mount. Then they switched to a bayonet for a while. And then in the 70s, they went back to the M42 screw mount. So I think they're the only company to, to, to start on a mount switch and then come back to it. Yeah, it's appropriate that this one is not working because most of the Petries I have are not working either. I think I've got one other SLR from them that actually does, but I have not had the best luck. 
Um, I think out of the 500 cameras or so I've got, I've got maybe seven or eight uh, of them. So, but yeah, sort of, sort of like you were saying that, like, I love to go down to, I had some shelves built downstairs and I love to just go down there periodically and just say, whoa, all these cameras, this is so cool. And just kind of, again, kind of stare at them. And, mm -hmm. and, and whenever I try to catalog, I normally end up just sitting there playing with whatever camera I pulled off the shelf for about 20 minutes. So it's kind of like when you have uh, a large selection of movies and it, it you know it gets to be like movie night you have a friend over and you're like hey let's watch a movie if you only have like five or ten movies to choose from it's not that hard to select but if you have like 500 movies you end up staring at your list of movies and you can't ever make a decision and i find that that's true of cameras is that when you have a huge wall of them you end up just staring at it for a while but beautiful sights look at at least though right <laughs> even if you don't yeah. use them all at the same time or can't even get to them all it's still stunning to, to see them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Mike, you're doing, uh, you're talking to people about their collections too, mm -hmm. right? Is that kind of a, um, a, a, you started your own podcast? Yeah, that's right. I, uh, it's called the, the ephemeral machine. And, um, it's, uh, just about four episodes old. Um, and I had the pleasure of um, speaking with Anthony for a little over an hour last week. Um, he was sort of my guinea pig uh, for um, the jumping off into what I'm calling the Silver Halide Sessions. And um, these are essentially interviews with um, collectors, aficionados, and historians. And... Um, I'm really focusing on the the collection itself, um, not so much the um, the photographic process, the film, the uh, um, the developer, anything like that, but but quite literally talking to collectors in terms of how their collections were formed, uh, the nuances, uh, specific brands, what drove them to collect specific cameras. Uh, and I think there's a lot of interesting stories out there, and um, um, I, 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 I'm, I'm excited to see what, what people have to say. I've been in contact with a, a few people, and um, it's, it's sort of, uh, I think it's going to grow pretty well. Um, and then we're going to sort of tangentially talk about things like um, display techniques, um, caring for your cameras if you have them out. Uh, what prompts you to choose to display not versus not to display? Sometimes it's a pragmatic thing. Um, Anthony lives in Florida, for instance, and can't keep his cameras out because of the um, environmental conditions. So, um, you know, it's it's things like that that I think are are sort of um, interesting and will prompt some uh, some discussion. So, you know, a question I would be curious to hear is of of all the people, you know, even the people on this call, but of all the people that have a collection, and and it could be anywhere from twenty to two hundred to whatever. But how many people would say they accidentally started collecting? Like, I don't know that anybody ever one day in their life says hey i'm gonna be a camera collector it just sort of happens uh mine was certainly driven by the website mm -hmm. um i i would not have had anywhere near what i have now if it weren't for that which which is probably unique because i don't know too many people that are blog-based collectors mm -hmm. but you know you have a lot of people who don't ever shoot at all you have people right. who shoot regularly mm -hmm. and then you have people that are somewhere in between Exactly. So it's that it's that uh, that sort of line that determines, you know, how the um, 
the the uh, interviewer is going to go, and um, you know what what drives a, a collector to put things together. Um, I, I think there's a lot there, and um, it's interesting to to think about the choices that you make and uh, what you let go of, what you hold on to. Um, and uh, we'll see how it goes. I'm excited about it. So that's cool. Yeah, Mario, I saw you raise your hand when I said accidental collection. Mm-hmm. Is, how, how did that go with you? Um, it's going good. I don't have near 200 or 500 <laughs> cameras myself. Mine's more right. along the lines of 20, um, and I love every one of them. I use uh, every one of them from time to time. With a few of them that I use almost all the time. Um, but for me, you know, I came from digital, and I had one camera. It was a Fujifilm X100, and I love, I loved that camera. But it took me all the way to film. It brought me to film. And uh, once I started seeing these gorgeous film cameras, I'm like, man, you know, it's exactly what I wanted from the Fujifilm X100, yeah. but way better, way, way better. <laughs> and I'd see one and then think, oh, I'd like to have that. So I'd get it. And then another one and some I got for free. So it's just very much a happy accident. <laughs> well, this is interesting. I, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a collector at all. I'm more of an accumulator and a recycler. And, uh, but but that's and see, I'm a friend of the collector. Yeah, think yeah, more yet more interesting cameras pass through Paul's hands than right. anybody here. But it's uh, <laughs> it's that kind of thing that's so interesting because uh, you know Paul to me Paul is a collector. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, you know because at a certain point in in whatever timeline he is sort of in the middle of, he has a volume of cameras and, um, and they exist for a specific reason. So, you know, whatever his role is in terms of his relationship to the cameras as, as a sort of a purveyor or, you know, if, if Mike is an, an archivist or, or, you know, something along those lines, um, I think each one of us, um, you know, looks at our collection differently. And um, I think it's interesting if we could sort of track that down a little bit. Michael Gossett, since I have to clarify which Michael I'm speaking to, you're yeah, yeah. probably one of the newest uh, of the group here. So, you know, you have the Speedex you already talked about, and I know we talked uh, the last time you were on, but your collection is, is really quite small, right? Not really. Camera small, lens yeah. massive. Um, okay. I've been adapting to digital since mm-hmm. uh, like 2012. Um, yeah, so I've got more 50s and I probably have over 50 50s and um, a lot of telephotos because I like to do a lot of wildlife stuff. But I've been trying to get back into film a little bit. So this is my probably best find ever. Uh, it was at a thrift store and it was a um, Safari Green Sumicron. Wow. <laughs> arm out so i've got it oh, adapted wow. to a canon rebel right now and um the safari lens was i think if you look at that one on the bottom of it it probably says r only so you have to watch on those because they only they they were only a three cam so they won't work on a leica flex i love the way it adapts to the 5d the old old school 5d for some reason it likes that sensor but on the sony it's hit or miss um i don't know if it has to do with the filter stack so I'm trying it out with film. The only problem I'm running into is I think it overexposes real easy with the metering. So you've got to compensate for that. Hey, Paul, I have a question that's a follow-up to something that you posted on one of the Facebook groups today. And you had a, a photo of, of two SLRs. And you said that of all your SLRs, these are the two that you come back to, the ones that you, you've been happy as shooting. And one was, a, was an F3. 
And I totally understand that. Um, I know nothing about Leica SLRs, but I was kind of surprised by the number of people that were like R4. Um, the R4 had a horrible reputation, but what happened was back in the in 80, 1986, I went to the Leica school as a dealer. And at that time, Leica was uh, promoting the R4 and the M6. So there were, I think there were probably 15 of us dealers there. And, and there was not, there was a competition of who got what camera. So everyone wanted the M cameras and I knew the M6. I, I didn't really care. I've, I've, I've used M6s, but I, I got to, I got to use the R4 and had a, I had all the lenses I wanted to try and I loved it. So when I got home, I bought a pair of them and, uh, and had lenses from 19 to 400 and the, some of the best chromes I ever shot were with that camera. The only limitation, the thing about the R4 that, that there were two problems. First of all, it, they always had a horrible shutter lag. Uh, I mean, you could, you could grill a cheese, you could make a grilled cheese sandwich between the time you push the button and the time the mirror went up. But the, the results were excellent. And the other problem that a lot of people had with it was that on serial numbers below a million six, um, they had some electronic issues. I never had a problem. And I, I've probably owned a dozen of them. I have two of them right now. Uh, today, I picked up an R4 with a motor and a, a 3570, 3.5, and a 72.10 F4. Um, and I, I haven't shot any film through it, but I've tested it out. And it's it was great. But I love the R4. You know, if you're if you're shooting castles in Ireland, they aren't moving very fast. No, they're not so moving. That... And, and you know, I I never shot really anything that required action. I didn't need a motor drive, uh, so they were they were perfect for what I do. Design wise and ergonomically, they're really you know very pretty cameras as well. I mean, they just yeah. good proportion. It's funny you mentioned shutter lag though, because I I've never handled an R or anything. Uh, but the one SLR that comes to mind with sh a common shutter lag issue is the Minolta XD11, which I know is similar to some of the Leica SLRs, correct? Yeah, they, they had a uh, they, they used some of the body uh, components, but the thing is, it was a sliding mirror. If you look at an R4, if you take it take the lens off and look at it, the mirror slides and then goes up. And that's where the lag time is, and, and I okay. don't, I don't remember the XD11 is the same, but it, it it has that same hesitation before you, uh, yeah, makes the exposure. On on the Minolta, on the side of the mirror box, there's a little piston, and on all the ones I've handled, you can usually get to the piston fairly easily. You do, you don't have to take too much of the camera apart to get to it, but even the slightest amount of debris, dust whatever will cause the mirror action to, to be delayed. And I've found that by just simply cleaning it, mm -hmm. um, you can actually get the, the XD11 to, to respond faster. And in my review, I, I did a through the viewfinder video with my cell phone before and after, and you can see a noticeable difference between when I clean that piston and not. So it, it sounds like it's a completely unrelated problem. But it's just ironic, though, that it's on kind of somewhat similar cameras. They have a history together. Yeah, they do. The XD11 and the R4 have a lot of uh, a lot of commonalities. Yeah, that's interesting. But you know, once again, I have never handled the R4, but the XD11 is fantastic. You know, I really do like that. The two lenses that I got today, the 35 70 35 and the 7210, 
were both made by Minolta. So, I mean, that's that's another commonality. They, they if I remember correctly, they, they actually, I can only remember four lenses they made, those two and a 16 and the 500. I think those were the, the only lenses that Minolta made that Leica marketed under their name. And the mounts are not the same, correct? No, Between no. Between the Minolta. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember that when I researched the XE7, which uh, the R3, I believe, was yeah, based on. Yeah, it had some yeah. similarities to the R3. Yeah. Is there a Minolta equivalent to that 16? You know, I, I'm i not sure. I, I don't yeah. remember that I've ever seen a Minolta, a Rodecore 16. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen one. I've had a couple of them of the, of the Leicas. Uh, they had built-in filters, and they were they were quite nice lenses, really. According to Rockor Files, there was a 16 millimeter f 2.8 MD fish eye. Uh, Does it say the years of production? No. Is like as a fish eye or rectilinear? No, it's fish eye, and it would have been uh, 84 to 90 or 92, I think. Hmm. He does mention. A late MD series lens. This is one lens that I truly coveted since getting my X700 in 1985. So while he doesn't say that's the year of release, it at least suggests that's probably when it was newer. Because it's 10 elements in seven groups. Hmm. I don't know. There's got to be some similarity. I I would have to imagine. I mean, they couldn't have tooled up just to make it for Leica because the numbers they sold were probably minuscule. Very small, right. It it would require a lot of effort to to create a 16-millimeter fisheye and then come around and make a completely unrelated one. So I would guess, but he he does not draw that conclusion. Yeah. So I won't either. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I wonder if they also made uh, the 500. I wonder if that's the same 500 they marketed under the Rocor. Uh, okay. hmm. I, I don't remember ever seeing a Rocor 500 either, though. You know, the cool one was the 256. Well, we could we could assign some homework to Michael Gossett since he likes uh-huh. lenses. We'll go. just have yeah. him buy one. <laughs> <laughs> I can see his wallet shriveling. Hey, Michael, I was going to ask you which are what what digital are you using all your fifties on? Um, usually a Sony A seven, but occasionally I'll use them on some Olympus ones because I'm it works out well as a hundred millimeter and the colors are better on Olympus. Yeah, I. I, I, the reason I asked you is I, I'm in the same boat you are. I probably have probably at least 30 or 40 50 millimeter lenses that I use on the uh, on the Sony A7R2s. Uh, they're they're all different. I mean, they're the Biotar is my favorite, but mm-hmm. I'm getting. Uh, we were talking earlier about Pentax, and I have a uh, Auto Tacomar 55 millimeter f2 that has the manual. It's a it's a preset semi-automatic lens. And uh, I've been shooting with that. I just love it. It's just a cool little. There's, there's definitely a lot of love for, for Pentaxes and, and Tacomars. Um, we were talking about which lenses um, in, in, in that series that we have. And, and I don't have anything truly original, but I was, I was telling Paul and Anthony that when I shoot even digital, I, my personal preference is I, I tend to, like a, a warmer color palette, you know, just, just a tinge towards a warm, uh, you know, if let's say you're editing an Adobe or something. And most of the Tacomars that I have, in fact, I think all of them yellow. 
which of course isn't unique to them, but it, it seems to be pretty common with, with Takamaras. And that works well for me when shooting film because it kind of just defaults in a, a slight yellowish uh, tint to the, to the, to the images. And I was wondering if, if you guys have, 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 you know, encountered the same thing. Well, I shot, I shoot, I shot Ektachrome. I mean, when I did 35 millimeter, I rarely shot anything but Ektachrome or Fujichrome. And my, I kept an A2, an Nikon A2 filter on every lens I had, which was basically an 81A. So it's just a slight warming filter to, to warm the filter, yeah. to pop it up just a little bit make it a little warmer because you know sometimes people will try to like make these uv contraptions to de-yellow lenses and, and i've never tried that before but i've never seen a lens yellowed so bad that it it, it negatively impacted my images I, I tend to like it yeah well yeah. a lot of those lenses were thorium glass or mm -hmm. lanthanum and uh, and mm -hmm. that's what gave you the yellow cast and you could you could subject it to a high uh, uv and uh, supposedly get rid of it, but I never saw the point in it. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I always liked the way it looked. Mm -hmm. The Aero Ektar that I just got, uh, has, if you shoot a light through it, it is absolutely glowing uh, amber. And uh, I'm, a little, I'm a little worried about selling it because if I got to ship it, I don't want it setting off Geiger counters. And, and, <laughs> uh, but it came to me by USPS. So I, I, it got through at least part of the, uh, part of the system. I've actually heard of that happening before. I, I can't think of the name of the person who told me that story, but I have heard of, uh, shipments being returned to sender due to high radiation content. And with the arrow ectar, that's a physically it's imposing a lens. lens. Yeah. So I mean, elements and a lot of glass in it. The, the amount of, uh, of uh, radiation being emitted from a, a Takamar is probably a lot different than an Aero Ektar. Yeah, you know, you get a kick out of people who are, who are they don't, I, I don't want to buy that lens because it's radioactive. It's, you know, you'd need to sleep with it stuck in your hat for three years without taking it off, you know, for it to have even any measurable effect. But, uh, Anyway, it's, it's you know, Paul, I, I'm of that age that uh, when I had my turntable and all my records, I had one of those uh, uh, record cleaning oh, brushes yeah, yeah, yeah. that had the radioactive yeah. isotope, mm -hmm. uh, isotopes on the front of it. Yep. Uh, yeah. It's like, come on. But you remember I, static master brushes? Yeah. That's exactly polonium. What it was. Exactly polonium. What it was. That's what polonium. It, was. it was a polonium yeah, strip polonium. on the static master brush. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I carried a three inch static master in my mm -hmm. pocket for years when I was working <laughs> yeah. in the dark room. <laughs> you know, I, yep. uh, one of one lens that's very known for being highly radioactive, Anthony, you have right now, is that uh, Canon 50mm F1.8 on oh, wow. the Canamatic. Awesome. I've got it in my kitchen right now. Yeah, I, there's actually a YouTube video where people measure it with a Geiger counter, and that's supposedly one of the <laughs> highest radiation... Uh, consumer lenses out there, so uh, I, I encourage you to shoot it, um, but don't put it between your legs. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> although, although I guess at your age, it's not probably an issue. <laughs> nice, <laughs> Mario. Were you trying to say something? Well, I've got a question about uh, all these radioactive uh, lenses. I have a fifty millimeter, a, a Takamar fifty millimeter f one four, and it does have that yellowing on the rear element. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering, you know, with black and white. Oftentimes we use yellow filters or with infrared film. Could you get by with just using that lens without a filter? Is it could it be that the rear, rear element is yellow enough that it acts as a filter? Let's pass a light through it. So 
Yeah, I, I don't think you're going to notice. It's not going to be like a K2. Yeah, right? I don't I don't think it makes that much. Yeah, of the, the density. It, it, it right. may lower contrast slightly mm-hmm. with uh, black and white film. Right. That would be the only thing. Cause the it's density of, of the yellow is yellow. Yeah. Yeah, it, not, you, not it, quite as much as a filter would mm-hmm. be. Then no, yeah. I would. I wouldn't think. I mean, it, a very, very, very pale effect you can see on color, but and I don't know. I mean, I guess you could test it and find out. Um, Mario, is yours? Is your fifty-one-four? Do you know? Have you checked to see if it's the eight element or is it the seven element? I think it's the seven element. Okay. Uh, I, I did. I watched a couple of videos on the. I think it was the super tech, super multi-coated Takamar fifty-one-four. Okay, and mine is, I believe, the second generation of it. The the first generation was the eight element, eight element, right? No, yeah, actually, I think the eight might have been. They 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 jumped around, so okay. there, there were some there were some variations, and then the eight, and then you went back to seven. Okay, it's really hard because there's not a definitive serial number list. Right, isn't that yeah. something to do with the I location of the R on yeah, the it's right. an IR mark? Uh, it's, yes. it's, it's either to the right or the left of F four. I can't remember which one it was. But, mm-hmm. Right, and that, from that, I was able to determine that mine wasn't the eight; it's the seven. Okay. <laughs> I've got the eight. It's on the R's oh. on the right on the on, eight. on the right of the. Yeah, the and then on the seven, it's on the left. But I guess they mix match their parts towards the end of the production. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's wow. some iffy ones. You know who else made an eight element 50 millimeter lens that almost nobody talks about is Miranda. <laughs> or Saligar, I should say. But the the original um, 50 F14 that came on a Sensor X was an eight element design. And yeah. as, as far as I know, Saligar never had any relationship with Izahi. So it's it's highly unlikely it has anything to do with the Takamar, which which would tell me that Saligar came up with their own eight element design. Um, Coevolution. Yeah, the and then the later ones are seven, similar. You know, they decided to simplify it. But if you look at the user manual for the Sensor X, and there are two versions of the Sensor X. I'm talking about the older one. It very clearly shows uh, a lens diagram with eight elements. So. I, I had one of those uh, not long ago, yeah. six or seven months ago, and it was interesting because it was a black barrel, uh, and the uh, it was it didn't look like any Miranda lens that I'd ever seen. Um, I don't know how I found out it was eight element. Somebody, I think I, I think I actually had it on eBay, and somebody. Uh, emailed me and said, hey, that's an eight element. And I started checking the serial number and it, it was. Well, since we're talking a little bit about adapting uh, classic lenses to digital cameras and a little bit about Pentax, I'm just going to make a pitch for my choice for digital camera. And that is when I when I lost, all, cause when I had this horrible robbery, I lost all of my, my Nikon gear and all my legacy glass that I had with it. And I had to replace with something. And at the time, this was uh, 2016, um, I decided to go with the Pentax K1, which was Pentax flagship full frame digital camera. And for me, the reason I went for that was it's completely backward compatible with all came out lenses, you know, natively. Uh, so no adapters, just any, if they, if, there, if it came out on it, you could drop it in there. Uh, you know, Pentax made their M42 adapter. So any M42 adapter just boom, put it right on. Then I found out that there was a Pentax 6.7 adapter. So any Pentax 6.7 glass can go directly on it uh, and just works. Um, and so that was really, that's been my digital test, but it's been the only digital 
uh, like a modern digital camera that I have. And it's a, it's a really cool camera. It's often overlooked. You never hear anybody talk about it. It never gets brought up in any forums. It's not a, an alpha. It's, you know, it's not a, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a, an ugly duckling of a camera, but my God, it gets some really wonderful results. It's, it's fully weatherproofed. And, uh, it really sings with that old uh, Pentax glass on it. Well, that, what about putting full vintage? Frame? What about? Could, I mean, could you put an exact an exact amount lens on it? I you, you know, I'm sure they probably do. It's full frame. Um, I've just I've been so happy to use it. You know, I've got enough Pentax lenses that I just never thought about. Even though I've got all these other lenses, um, I you've just, got a pile of Soviet lenses you could put on it. Or East German lenses too. Yeah, cool. yeah. So uh, you know, it's funny though because nobody ever talks about it. Um, cool camera though. It's it's it's. You can probably pick them up. I mean, I think they still make them. I think that it's still in production after, uh, you know, five, six years, seven years, which is like an incredible lifespan for uh, a digital camera. Um, yeah, it's a cool camera. If I'm not mistaken, I think maybe Mike Gutterman. He's a big Pentax guy, and I think he. If my memory serves me right, I think he talked about the K1 on a podcast maybe a year ago or two. I can't remember, uh, but I, I remember him talking about kind of the underdog, underdog nature of the Pentax digital system because all these other companies, you know, like he said, kind of get the limelight, but right. he loves the Pentax. So, yeah. So, Mike, do we, do we want to do a dive into Pentax? Do we want to talk about some of our, uh, our favorite Pentaxes? Yeah, I mean, I, I I see no reason to, to not talk to about <laughs> to talk about Pentaxes. As is um, as I'm going to be back. I'll go get mine. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Mark, you just held up what the one ten there? Yeah, yeah. So we're no, we're going to start small. <laughs> yeah, I just got one of those with uh, four lenses. The first one I'd seen in a long time. Cool little camera. Yeah, I love it. I've got a telephoto lens somewhere, but ever since we moved, I can't find it. So I'll have to <laughs> go searching for that. But I love this. So what are you, this is one is an SL, which I had never seen. It's I don't a think I've ever seen without one. a meter. Yeah. It's a Pentax SL? Yep. It's a Spotmatic, but there is no meter. Oh. So there's no meter switch. Well, that's okay. interesting. So it's just a mechanical Spotmatic. It's, I mean, it it is a Spotmatic. Yeah. Wow. wow. It, but it, it doesn't say Spotmatic anywhere on it's Honeywell. I've um, I've never seen that. No, they, they made they made uh it's very rare a Nicromat FS. Oh yeah, which, FS which, which 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 is a meterless Nicromat. So there was a short lived period where they were taking metered cameras and and unmetering them. Hmm. Uh, but real quick back to Mark though, you you haven't shot that Auto One Ten yet. Uh, actually, no, I did a long time ago. It's up on the website somewhere. Um, I got some images out of it quite nice. I'd like to do some more. I just always forget to grab it and slap it in a bag when I go out. Um, but yeah, just it's it's a, even though I've got like large hands, it actually feels pretty decent in the hand to use. So that's cool. Uh, yeah. I have I have not, to be honest, had good luck with Spotmatics. They either seem to have uh, welded with corrosion shut battery compartments. It's for maybe it's just my luck, but I've had more Spotmatics where not only the, is is the metering dead, but I can't even get the battery compartment open. Mercury but, batteries. And it, it, no, no, no. Four hundred batteries. Yeah, it for, just I don't know what it is though, but my luck with Spotmatics seems to be worse. 
uh, than other brands. So um, I b- believe me, I'm not dissing on Pentax. It, it just causes me to stick to the older ones. Like the SV was probably one of the first SLRs I, I can say I truly fell in love with. Um, but even more than that one is, is I was lucky enough to get a Pentax K, not not the K1000. It's the original K, which was like the, the original AP Pentax that has the slow speed dial on the front face. Ooh. And the, the original three Pentaxes, uh, the AP, the S, and the K were entirely handmade. They, they didn't switch to like a, a, an assembly line type system until um, after those cameras. But it is, uh, this might be heresy, but, you know, you talk about the smoothness of a Leica Flex or the smoothness of, you know, some, some of the better SLRs made. And those are early Pentaxes. So it's like, they're like the Azahi Flexes. You know, they kind of all have that. Yeah, Paul's holding up an Azahi Flex. I know, Anthony, you have the tower version. Yeah, I've got the, thanks to you, I have the uh, yeah. Power 22 with the, with, it's a Biotar, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all those early, the Azahi Flexes and the first three Pentaxes, the smoothness of them is just a, a notch higher than the later ones. So if, if anybody gets an opportunity to try a K, an S, or the original AP, which that's just the collector's name for it. it. Didn't even have a name. It was just called the Azahi Pentax. But those are just absolute gloriously nice cameras. When you say smoothness, uh, do you mean the camera, the lens? Uh, what, what exactly do you the, mean? The the action of the wind lever, you know, firing the shutter. You know how like, you know how there's a difference when you fire. You know, I'm just gonna knock on a Petri. You know, a lower grade SLR versus like a Nikon. You know, you, you can hear the difference in the quality of the shutter. But then if you ever get a chance to shoot a Leica Flex, the shutter just makes a different sound. It just mm-hmm. sounds different. It's more of a snick, you know. And and those early Pentaxes, I think, are on that level. They, they make a snick more than a click. Mm-hmm. That should be their, their motto. <laughs> snick. This, is an, this is an H1. and uh, That's an early one. That'd be like the SV. One. Yeah, it's um, it's really nice. It's Highland. It's got a great lens cap. I always thought, uh-huh. and uh, it's got the round meter up top, and um, works perfectly. It's a really nice camera, and it's got that smooth sound that you're talking about, Mike. Yeah, it's got yeah. The two point two on here, so um, it's a nice camera, nice lens combination. Actually, Mike, on on that uh, on my Tower Twenty Two, that's it's a Heliard, not a Biotar, right? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Uh, it might be, I, you know, now that you say that, I, I believe it is. I think it's, it's a Heliar. Yeah. I think it's one of the only like uh, SLL SLR mount Heliars other than the, the crazy Pentax 100 F4. Well, here uh, I will, I will, uh, settle this. I have the ultimate Azahi Pentax screw mount guide book by Gershon van Oosten. But which... I, I just, I just want to say that, that, that while you're looking that up, that, that, that tower 22, uh, as a portrait camera, uh, the out of focus, the UFTA, the you know the bokeh on the back, it looks like a rear screen projection cinema uh, backdrop. I mean, it is just mm. it it doesn't give you any swirliness. It just goes to this like creaminess where uh, the front just pops, and you know anything that's in focus up close, um, it just looks like a looks like it's one of those few cameras that I have that I know that's going to give me 
sort of the Hollywood glamour look when you take a portrait with it. Uh, Am I looking up the 2.2 or the 2.4? I don't remember, and I don't have it in this room. Um, Um, Because the 2.4 is definitely a 5 element. Yeah, mine's a 2.4. It's a 58 millimeter 2.4. Yeah, okay. So the 58 millimeter 2.4 was produced between May 1957 to March 1958. Uh, It's a 5 elements, 3 groups, preset lens. So it's a Heliar. It, yeah, it doesn't actually say Helier, but yeah, that's what it sounds like to me because the Biotar is not a six or not a five element. Yeah. All right. Well, there we'll just declare that it is. But that, that yeah, <laughs> that fifty eight two point four, it's just got it's got the mojo. You know, yeah. that, that that camera is is really kind of kind of special. Yeah. We'll yeah. look through the waist waist level finder, but it is special. Well, I could I, I found the fifty five millimeter Tacomar two point two, and that is also five elements. Five elements in five groups, though, whereas the 2.4 is three groups. Yeah. I don't know what that does to its formula, but I think it's safe to declare they're both interesting lenses. Yeah, very much. That's interesting. The, the, uh, I was just looking at the Asahi Flex here, and it's a, a 55, 58, 2.4. Yeah. Uh, Takamar. Right. Yeah, they didn't do the auto Takamars until later. Right. Um, right. So... Okay, I this one I'm just I, I haven't seen. This has got a lot of glass in it. I'm just curious <laughs> what the design is. So you're at the, you have the 2.4. You said yeah, is yeah. That, that was the, the first one I mentioned. Is that the screw mount, Paul? Yeah, it is yeah. a screw mount. The 40 it's millimeter. Not, it's not 42. It's 40. It's 40. Yeah. Right. 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 Interesting. Yeah, this is a good book. If you're a fan of, um, uh, I don't have my video on, so I can't show, but I'll, I'll include a picture of it in the, the show notes. But uh, for anybody who's interested in Pentax screw mounts, um, this is the book you want to get. Uh, it's really, really good. It's by Gershon van Oosten. So it's, it sounds like a, a Dutchman. What's but the name re- of the book? It's called The Ultimate Azahi Pentax Screw Mount Guide. 1952 to 1977. One of these days, I'll have to put my thoughts down on which books I found to be useful uh, in my research, and that's definitely one of them that's worth looking for. Mark, you held up another camera before the 110. What what was the other one that you held up there? Well, the the first uh, Pentax I fell in love with was the ME Super, which I've used a fair amount. But then I found the I got the MEF, which was a poorly received first sort of automatic. Um, Autofocus SLR. I have not yeah. been able to find one of the lenses for it yet at a reasonable price, but I would love to get my hands on one of those to try it out and see how bad it actually is for myself. <laughs> I've never it seen was, one. It was bad. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> it's it's basically just a modified ME Super. Yeah. Did 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 that? Did the MEF had focus confirmation with uh, with it, with K mount lenses? I mean, did did it show you? I think it was uh, two green arrows and a red dot. There is, yeah, it doesn't, you know, unfortunately having a manual lens on here, I can't double check that, but I believe it, it did. Yeah, some yeah. of the research I've done, it seems like it had some sort of confirmation, but it was uh, spotty at best. Yeah. You know, it's a fun SLR that you can see. <laughs> it's a spotty-matic. Um, one camera that's really fun, and I see it still sell relatively cheaply, is the Canon T80, 
which was very similar to the MEF in that it had in-body focus confirmation that worked with proprietary, like it's one of those lenses that has the external focus motors on the lens, so it looked really goofy. But you could mount any Canon manual focus lens to it, and it will still give you focus confirmation. Um, another really cool feature of that camera is it has a split image focusing aid like a lot of SLRs did, but it's actually a double split. So it's like a plus sign. So you can actually get a split image both in portrait and, yeah, okay. So Michael Gossett's holding one up. Yeah, you've actually uh, got the AF lens for it or this. Yeah. The supposedly, yeah. The, the, the autofocus as we referred to them, the yeah. autofocus, but it didn't always. And, and I've I've reviewed that camera, and it, it definitely sucks with moving uh, moving things. But I mean, still, you know, you walk out and you just want to, you know, get some autofocus of stuff that's not moving. It, it does a, a good job of it, you know. I mean, when you consider the technology of the era, uh, it, it actually does work really well. And you know, if if you want to shoot Canon glass and and can appreciate or have a use for focus confirmation it's it's a fun little camera to pick up probably just like that mef i would guess although i've, I've never handled one of those you, you know i feel about a, like a bit of a heretic here coming back to, to mark's camera and that the the emmy and the emmy super i just i just never gelled with those cameras i've had multiple copies of both uh it's one of the few cameras that 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 as soon as i've been able to get them up and working i'll just hand them off to one of my uh, to to like if I have a barista that's working for me that wants to get into film, it's a good camera to get into, you know. To, but I just it's not a camera that interests me to shoot. The camera that is just a little bit before that era that I just absolutely adore those the MX. Mm -hmm. uh, if I if I if I had a pantheon of, of all manual, just rock solid, reliable uh, sort of re reporter class cameras, you know, you've got you've got your MX, you've got your OM one, you've got your FM two. Uh, and the uh, the MX with that that forty millimeter pancake lens um, is just like it, it's so small and it's so easy to travel with and it's so easy to move in and out of crowds with it and that camera is super reliable. Um, although I just heard from Sherry Christensen that her meter crapped out on her today, uh, but for the most part they're they're great cameras and uh, you know they're still fairly affordable because they you know for some reason the the, the emmys and the emmy supers are are kind of ascendant right now uh among various chat groups and and various uh uh forums uh but man that mx is to me it's like the real sleeper of that whole generation yeah that's it's definitely my favorite came out pentax for sure it's, it's fantastic yeah i mean it's time to sell my business when i first started, got into the business pentax had just come out with a km K2 and KX. And uh, I love those cameras. They were heavy. I mean, they were like Canon FTBs uh, or Nicker mats. I mean, they were just heavy cameras. And then they came out with the ME and the MX. And it just totally changed. I mean, everybody that had been using Spotmatics went to the MEs and MXs. Yeah, I've definitely skewed more towards the full manual cameras now. Like, this is one of the earlier ones that I got, uh, maybe back in 2015, 2016. And it was fun to use because, again, it was an easy entry into, into shooting initially. Um, but I just enjoy the full manual control much more. And also to your question, Paul, it looks like, yes, the most came out lenses will work with the, with the folks indication on the MEF. Hmm. So yeah, the, which one do you like the best? I, I didn't, I didn't catch. You said you like full manual, which one was it that you prefer? Well, in pin, I don't have a whole lot of Pentax, but like in, in, I love like, you know, the OM series, any of the ones there that 
our full manual. That's kind of my go-to on that end. Um, but I also just, I generally love range finders more so than, than SLRs. And I could just sit and, and mess around with a, with a good quality range finder all day, like some of the Canons or even like the, maybe the Nikon S2 I love. Uh, but yeah, definitely, you know, the, the, especially because the electronics tend to be a little flaky on some of these, I feel that the manual is just a much safer bet if you're going to go out and go shooting and, and not have to worry about a battery or uh, a meter going dead or something like that. You know, one person we haven't heard from yet is Theo. Theo, what do you think of uh, Pentax? Boy, crikey. I love the Pentax Spotmatic SP. It is one of my favorite SLRs to shoot. They're undervalued. <laughs> I disagree, Theo. L. That is fighting words, Michael. Next thing you are going to say is that Steve Irwin is not the goat, aren't you? You know, I have the Spotmatic SP right here. I'm just teasing. It. I'm just there. You go. Not here. Yeah. I, I, do, well, do you remember the SP500 and the SP1000 and what the difference was? I reckon the difference is that one only shows a top speed of 500 and the other shows 1000, but they both can do 1000. Yes. So you just turn 500,000 was a little bit of paint that said 1000 right. on it. Yeah, you just turn it to the blank spot and the shutter still fires at 1 1000. Uh, the other came out lens that lives on my my MX though is the uh, Pentax M 35mm f2 and uh, you usually see the 28 or is it maybe it's 35 I don't remember what the but that that uh 35.2 is probably my favorite 35 millimeter lens that I own. That was an excellent lens. The, the 35 f2 and the 85.18 are two of the best lenses they made, I think, for the Pentax. Yeah, but it's it's a, it's a stunning. It just like I said, it, it basically just lives on my MX now. Now, did they make that in both screw and came out? I think it just came out. I think it's a Pentax M okay. uh, came out. No, they made it in they made it in S in in M42. Oh, okay. You know, it's a good thing I have the ultimate Azahi Pentax screw-mount guide. <laughs> it's funny the resources I sometimes have mm. at my fingertips and I forget to look. <laughs> well, I gentlemen, I... Um, version. Oh, God. I'm sorry. I uh, I need to make my exit. I um, As I said, I, I need to get my beauty sleep for tomorrow. So um, well, I'm good. going to uh, to slip out. How's your Canon? How's your Canon uh, thread mount lens working? Uh, right now, it's uh, in CLA mode on my bench. Uh, um, okay. It's a beautiful lens. Um, I got the uh, Serenar from Paul uh, when we saw each other at a recent camera show here in. Uh, it was in up uh, near Cincinnati, I believe. Right. And um, uh, it's a great lens. Um, the aperture was a little stiff. Um, the focus was a little not not as nice as I like it, so I decided to go in on it, and um, I'll have it back together in a day. So it's a beautiful lens; I really like it. I have the thirty-five millimeter Serenar, and um, that's also really a nice combo. And I just got a Canon Seven to put it on, so it's all clicking. What can I say? So, um, but um, anyway, uh, yeah. Thanks, thanks for joining, Mike. Well, uh, Glad to have you back and keep up the good work on the new podcast. Uh, you know, you've shared some some feedback for us, and I just wanted to pass along back to you. You know, uh, uh, the, the world could never have enough film photography podcasts. Yeah, tell me about it. Well, I'm uh, I'm really excited about it. I've been listening to a lot of the other ones. Um, I've been on on Mario's for quite a bit, and uh, I really like it. And um, just stay tuned. Um, Anthony's a coming. What can I say? All right. <laughs> His interview will be up uh, probably by the end of the week. So um, looking forward to that. That's exciting. Awesome. 
yeah yeah it's uh, it was a lot of fun and um you know we'll we'll just take this on and see where we, it goes we have we have film nerd academic and jokes yeah, yeah uh, <laughs> we spent it was another 45 minutes after we ended the interview that we just kept talking so uh it was like uh, old old school days what can i say wow. um yeah thanks mike get your videos you uh, but I did look it up. Uh, so in screw mount, there is an auto Takamar 85 millimeter 1.8. There is a super Takamar 85 millimeter 1.9, which was the later one. It was made from 64 to 71. And this has got to be rare. From winter of 1957 to 1959, there was just a, a regular Takamar 83 millimeter 1.9. Uh, that, that's a seven element lens. So it looks like it would have been for the original AP Pentax. You don't see too many 83 millimeter lenses. So that's, that's gotta be a valuable one. Huh. I really, I'm realizing I have an appalling lack of Pentax lenses at this point. So. <laughs> the, 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 and the M42 that, that they're, they're two that, I mean, they're probably not the most you know sexy lenses, but the, uh, the, the 28, three, five, uh, I just, I was just shooting that with the ES that I got from Paul. Um, I, I've been doing a lot of testing with, uh, um, Rolly super pan 200, which apparently may or may not be, um, old Agfa Scala 200. And, uh, that, that I, I truly enjoy shooting with that, that ES. It's just, it's a really cool camera. Um, is that the, which one I'm, I'm trying to read it. That's the 28 3.5. So what do you think of that, that lens, Michael? You've got one there. It's the K mount. It's a, I think a different formula, but yeah, this is one of the best landscape lenses out. And you guys were talking about warmer colors. This it's warmer and richer colors. And I don't think this one's radioactive. If it is, it's mildly so. So it's got to deal more with the formula and the coatings. The coatings, yeah. Yeah, I was I was shooting mine with, like I said, with the Super Pan 200 with a, a Hoya 25A red to see what I could, you know, that's sort of like near infrared. And I, it's just, it's for, for shooting like landscapes, it's a stunning lens. It's edge to edge sharp. Um, you know, it, 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 it's just, it really renders landscapes wonderfully well. The screw mount, um, 35, 3.5 is the same, but the exception to that rule is the 24, um, yeah. the 24, I think it's a 3.5. That one, the colors are there, but, um, it's not sharp. Yeah. And then the other one that I just, just enjoy shooting is the, is it the 105? Uh, I also picked this one up from Paul. What's that? Is it a 2.5? Yeah. 105. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, a great I, one. I've got that on my Spotmatic F and uh, it's just, it's a great, it's a great lens and they're not terribly expensive. No, that's, uh, that's a good, that's a good value lens. Yeah. You know, um, I, I uh, got a message from somebody here in Vermont about somebody in Southern Vermont giving away some Spotmatics and uh, just some old cameras. And two of them were Spotmatic. One was a, a Spotmatic F and one was a Spotmatic two. And one of them speaking about less expensive lenses, and this isn't a Takamar lens, but one of them came with uh, on the camera, at least a Vivitar 135 mm -hmm. F uh, F2 mm -hmm. uh, F28. I'm sorry, F28. And I'm thoroughly impressed by the build quality of that lens, the clarity, the way it renders images. So, so impressed, in fact, that I bought another one for my Minolta system. And then I bought the 200 millimeter uh, versions, the S35, for both the 
uh, M42 and MD mounts, and they're just wonderful, wonderful lenses. Mario, what? do you have the the, uh, the list of uh, serial numbers that show who yeah. made which particular Vivitar lens? Yeah, it's twenty. It's Comine. Oh, it is Comine. Yeah, yeah. Those are the, the, that. Those are, I think, the best. Just uh, stunning, stunning lenses. Kino made some of them. Comine made some of them. Yeah, Kino made some of them. For uh, what Paul's saying is, for anybody not familiar, is Vivitar didn't actually make their own lenses. They outsourced and they used a variety of companies to make their lenses. And you can usually determine who made which version by the serial numbers. I know the uh, this the series one seventy to two ten zoom. There's like eight or something different versions of that same lens. <laughs> so when whenever you read or hear a positive Vivitar recommendation, you got to pay close attention to which version of that same lens you're getting. The, the Vivitar 72103.5 that went half life size macro was the first one, and it was designed here in Dayton by a, a company that uh, actually was a contractor for the Air Force. And um, I did a lot of um, I did a lot of work with them. They were doing uh, heads up displays and. Uh, oh. This came out of some of the heads-up display work was uh, the design of that particular lens. And I still think that was the best one. It was a straight 3.5 push-pull, half-life-size macro, and had a beautiful coating on it. Before the Vivitar 7210, yeah, I mean, people did zoom lenses. But I, I think that that one lens had a big role in getting zoom lenses into the kits of, of a lot of professionals. Yes. The, I mean, for example, the Nikon 80-200 F4 and 4.5s were just, you know, they were just sloppy, nasty lenses to shoot with. And uh, and, and Canon had nothing except the 100-200 I think Pentax had, they had an 80-205, 4.5 maybe, or something in yeah. that odd range. But there was no seriously good lenses until that Series 1. One really un like not talked about lens that I love. Uh, it's a Nikkor 100 to 300. It's an f 5.6, so it's kind of a slow lens. But I've shot this lens digitally. I actually use it for collimating lenses when I'm when I'm fixing cameras, and it's a push pull, you know, single action lens. And uh, I, I really really like this lens, and you can find it for for dirt cheap. It is kind of big. Um, but for, for a really cheap economical lens that like almost nobody talks about, this is, this is one I've tried to recommend to people too. Um, That's a, that is really a nice lens. The other one that's similar to it then that being underappreciated is a 35 to 200. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you get a lot more range. You can buy them for $89 in, in excellent condition. Yeah. I, I picked this one up, I think for like $35. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I didn't even know it was any good. I just saw a Nikkor lens that cheap. And I was like, well, I'll give it a shot. And I ended up loving it. So so speaking of off-brand lenses, I've got one that uh, the last time I was in Montreal, I was in a little camera shop. They just had a like a, a remaindered box of, of, of M42 lenses. And they were like, yeah, anything in there is $30 Canadian. And I ended up with a Sigma Z28 2.8 M42. And it's really kind of an odd lens because it looks like a modern lens. It looks like something that would have been made in the last like 20 years, but it's an M42 mount. Uh, and I know nothing about, I mean, I don't know anything at all about these Sigma Zs, uh, but it seems to be like a super heavy duty lens. Was it marked? Did it say macro on it anywhere? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That was, 
that was, you know, that's funny. That was distributed in the U.S. by Ehrenreich. Ehrenreich at that time had two different lines. They had a red line and a blue line. One of them was, was Nikon, and the other one was everything else, which was Capro, <laughs> Kenderman, Sigma, uh, oh, uh, Sunpack. Uh, yeah, Sunpack. They made they distributed flash units. And uh, those Sigma lenses were actually really good back then. They were actually very nice. What, what time period? Was this like 80s, 70s? 70s. 77 to, I think, when Nikon USA took over, Ehrenreich dropped. They, they closed. Yeah. I think it would have been 77 to 80, to roughly 80. Yeah, Ehrenreich would went under in like eighty or eighty two, between eighty and eighty two. Yeah, I I didn't even think he he lasted to the eighties at all. But you, you're I would trust you're over me. And then well, and then the other uh, other oddball that I have for for Pentax is uh, uh, one of the the one hundred five dental macros, cool. uh, the the company down in Fort Lauderdale that made the 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 the, the dental the dental line Lester Dine. Lester Dine, yes, it's it's a Lester Dine. Uh, this was when, when Carl was around. This is one of his favorite lenses of mine to borrow because uh, he could just go do flower photography. I mean, you, it, it's a one to one macro, one hundred and five. Uh, you know, it's designed. It comes with a ring flash. It's designed for photographing teeth. Um, That's say teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you you could you can count the cavities with it. That's for sure. Uh, it, it 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 is the most. Uh, Macro of macro lenses I've ever shot. Has, have any of you guys ever shot the Yashica dental eye? No, oh, I've I've sold I've sold literally hundreds of those things. Can, I mean, can you use them for like things other than teeth? I no. mean, like, I mean, they don't really work because they're, they they don't. Well, the dental eye, the first version of it was different from the version two. The okay. version two didn't come off, and, and it was strictly automatic, and it was made. It was actually made for orthodontists. Uh, and they, for for color matching on teeth and uh, for smile shots and things like that, but uh, I but I mean, there's nothing stopping you from shooting bugs or flower pictures on. Oh, right? you could do it. You could do it. It's just yeah. it's, it's so automatic that you really don't have any any. Uh, I gotcha. Override at all with. Paul, do you know who made those Lester Dine lenses? Yashica. Oh, oh no, Kiron. Kiron. Kiron okay. made most of them. Uh, in fact, they they looked exactly like the Kiron hundred millimeter, hundred one hundred five or one hundred, whatever it was. The, they're yeah, they were Kirons. Yeah, I think there's they're, a Vivitar equivalent, the one hundred five two point five, not to be confused with the ninety two point five. That's uh, the same lens. That, I that was also probably a Kiron lens. Yeah, it, it's also a Series One, I believe. I mean, there are a lot of Vivitar macros, so it kind of gets confusing. But oh, go ahead, Mario. Well, it's a question that off the topic of lenses or cameras, and it's specifically for Anthony, which is the reason, the big reason why I wanted to join tonight. I don't know if you want to- <laughs> Go for it. Okay. Yeah, go for it. We love questions. So um, it relates a little bit to what you were talking about before with your, your cafe. And I remember on an earlier episode, you were talking about um, having classes yep. about caffeinol. Yes. Now, I want to know about caffeinol because I've done it one time. I think oh, wow. Just a cool thing, but I didn't. I mean, it was early, early on. I I hadn't even developed uh, color film at that time, or okay. you know anything. That was my first, the first time I developed anything was in caffeinol. So I want to know what recipes you like and development times and films and oh oh, <laughs> you know that you're putting me on the spot here. I have I don't have my notebook with me, 
I have yeah. I have a notebook that I carry for when I'm doing the Kaffenol class, yeah. and I've got like a slow speed recipe and uh, like an all around recipe uh, that like there's one that I'm using for uh, like micro microfilm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the one that I'm just using for like general purpose, like FOMA or the Kodak or H, you know, the the Ilford Black and White. Right. Um, and you know, I, I'm a, I you know, it's it's a very basic. It's just the the, the basic uh, formula we're using. Uh, I, I always get here in Florida. There's um, a uh, a cheap Cuban coffee called Bustelo. Uh, yeah, yeah, super big down in Miami. And so I, I call it a uh, uh, boostanol because uh, because you can always get you can always get their free their their instant coffee uh, buy one get one free at the Publix. Oh wow! Uh, okay. And and then I just have like a a five pound bag of vitamin C powder that doesn't have sorbitol. You want to get one that doesn't have any additives, and that's just been, pure straight pure, ascorbic acid. Ascorbic acid because that's been one of the issues has been that you know to make it more palatable they're now like jacking up the the vitamin c powder with with uh, uh sorbitol or 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 aspartame or some of the the artificial sweeteners and yeah. uh that's not great uh and then i just i just went online on amazon and got like a five pound bag of of washing soda and then i use a little bit of sodium uh bromide just like a tiny like a the eighth of a teaspoon when, when i do a mix when you where do you get sodium bromide? Is it? Um... Uh, uh, I think it's Photographer's Formulary has it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I think I picked mine up through Freestyle, and it wasn't expensive. It's just like a you know like a little like a jar of aspirin size, uh, and and you're only using like an eighth of a teaspoon. Uh, and that's to do... per development. Uh, right, right, because it's, it's all it's all one shot. Maybe it's because I I work in coffee. I don't find the smell to be that horrible. I don't remember it being that bad. I mean, the one time it was two years ago, but I yeah. didn't find it to be horrible, you know? So, but I mean, I've done hundreds of rolls through it and okay. it's, it's super reliable. Uh, yeah. I, I, I really haven't, I mean, I do, I, I really actually like it best for the, like the crazy slow speed films, you know, like the, the films that are like 25 and under. Yeah. Um, I get great like, results from it. So like I, I like 2238 and 2237 films. Yeah. Um, and then I've got a bunch of like obscure films that I got from this guy off of Etsy, old, old film stocks from the maybe 60s, 70s. Yeah. Um, but still produce really nice results. And I've always developed them in HC 110, but I want to try Caffinol. Well, I mean, one of my, I, I, I've, I've talked about it before and I'll mention it again. One of my great, um Katowicki finds was was 400 feet of uh of of Kodak 5220 XT which oh, wow. it was a it was a, a low speed daylight black and white film that was uh it was supposed to be like the cine version of of uh, Panatomic X and oh. so uh, where they had oh. where they had 5222 uh, double X for uh shooting under tungsten uh, the five two two zero was for daylight, and it's okay. twenty. It's, it's twenty five ISO. But it was only made in the sixties. It was made from like nineteen sixty three, sixty four, uh, through around nineteen sixty eight. And uh, um, if you've if you've ever shot like Panatomic X or any of these Kodak twenty five ISO films, um, it's 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 stunning. The only problem is it can be really thin if you if you misdevelop it. Uh, okay. you know, where you're looking at it going, I think I can pull something out of this in the scan. Yeah. 
but but when you get it right, and I've been able to get great results on it through Caffinol, um, it's just absolutely stunning. And I mean, so this is a, a film that's uh, pushing fifty five years old. Yeah. Mario, do you remember the name of the Etsy seller that you bought that film from? Oh man, um, oh old. You know what? Let me. Uh, I don't know if I. Mark knows why I'm asking. Okay. <laughs> One moment. Is I'm it gonna... is it Mark? No, no, it's a mutual friend of ours that I've been trying for several weeks to get on this show. Uh, that sells tons of relabeled um, old film stocks on Etsy. Okay, and... it's the cl- classic film shop. Yeah, that's him. Wow. <laughs> that's him. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I've gotten. I've probably probably bought like. 40 rolls of film from him. I mean, it, the, the last one that I just shot, uh, that I shot from, from his store that I got from him was a paper-based film. Yeah, I have um, a roll of that. Oh, yeah. is, isn't it cool? Yeah, yeah, I haven't used it yet. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, I mean, Anthony's a great friend, Paul's a great friend, Mark's a great friend, but Adam is the person that pushed me the most to learn to develop. Um, uh, I, I don't even know that my site would have taken off if it wasn't, he literally got tired of hearing me complain about the prices of development, and he would he would get like schnapps bottles and just fill them up with the. I think he did the same thing to you, Mark, right? Yep, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, they Mark and Adam work at the same place. Oh. Um. So he he sent me. Uh, he got me addicted on developers. He got me once I I could handle black and white. He sent me a C forty one kit and said, "You're going to do this now." Uh, he will just randomly ship both of us packages of like nitrate film from the forties. Wow. You know, and and he sells oh. it on um on his Etsy shop. And ironically, I, again, I God, I say this every week. This is not planned. My review that I have tomorrow that's going live on my site, so it'll actually be out by the time this podcast airs, will be on a camera given to me by him. Wow. Um, so it, I, when you said you buy obscure film from some guy on Etsy, it's like, well, <laughs> it, it's probably Adam. Yeah, Adam so, Paul, I think is his name, right? Yeah, yeah. that's mm-hmm. him. Okay. So you're afraid of shipping radioactive glass through the mail, yet you're shipping nitrate films? That was Paul. He he, he actually got uh, he got yelled at by somebody for selling nitrate film through the mail because yeah. it's, it's flammable. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Mark, we are really going to have to turn the screws on Adam to get him to stay up late one night and get on the show. Cause Absolutely. Yeah. He, he, Adam is the ultimate film hacker i mean he not only gets these obscure films and he is he puts these really cool labels on his cassettes the presentation yes, is really well he mm-hmm. did, have you ever bought any films where he actually cut the type of film into the leader mm-hmm. he the, bought the numbers he bought a uh like a hole punch but instead of holes it's numbers yeah so if you get like 2235 film he imprints the numbers two two three five into the leader itself. Prints his own labels. Um, recently, he's gotten into um, removing the IR or turning digital point and shoots into IR cameras. So he's been selling those. He bought a crapload of single use cameras that he would open up and reload with obscure films in them. So, like, even if you don't have a camera, you can buy. Uh, I'm looking at his store right now. He does not actually have a lot of inventory at the moment. 
Um, so I, I don't want people to get too excited. But the, the, the cool stuff that he's had up there, be- I mean, between cutting 70 millimeter Hasselblad film down to 127, 828, 116. Uh, he, I think like I, I said, even saw like 14 millimeter film one time. Yeah. The little hit cameras. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he's done hit cameras. He's got... It's like you can literally just say, "Hey, I invented a camera. I need film for it." And be like, "All right, I'll put something together for you." So wow. he—he's definitely somebody I've been trying already, uh, and I know Mark has too. But he's—he uh, doesn't stay up too late, so the—the <laughs> the time is—is is a challenge for him. But yeah, um, all the films that I've gotten from him, I've gotten some super like really really foggy foggy film, but it created a. A pretty interesting effect. I shot some uh, pictures of uh, mm-hmm. an abandoned building of some sort, and it made it look like a horror film, you know? <laughs> or a horror yeah. Film. In, in, every, know, just... in every film stock he has, he'll include six or seven sample pictures. So, yes. I mean, if, you, if you're going to get a foggy result, I mean, he's very honest about what you're going to get from it. Well, that's what he said, was it was going to be foggy. Just expect, yeah. don't expect too much more than the fogginess. And I, they were just beautiful, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So, so well, Mike, uh, Mike, I don't have any uh, gear acquisitions this week, but my my uh, project has been to teach myself uh, black and white reversal development. Uh, you know, because a friend of mine had gifted me like four pro packs of Scala 120, and I thought, well, yeah. I should try to see if I can do this. Um, it's crazy. I felt like such a mad scientist. Uh, have you ever done any uh, black and white reversal, Mark? Never have. I've thought about it. I've looked at it a little bit, but never had the guts to try it. Yeah. yeah. You, you apparently have to. It's all one shot. Uh, and like the I got the FOMA R kit from Freestyle. And it's like it's like $65 for the kit. And it does eight rolls of film. Um, strangely enough, my package came with a minor leak in it. And the box was soaked through. And Freestyle sent me a second kit as a replacement. So I've got two That's cool. kits now. And uh, uh, basically for doing a, a roll of 35 millimeter, you take uh, 300 milliliters of water and then you take uh, 30 milliliters out of the chemical and mix it on the spot. And it has all over the instructions must be used immediately. Do not store mixed chemicals. Uh, apparently it does not age well at all, but it, it's just, it's, it's a time suck because you, you run a developer, for 12 minutes and then it's a two minute active wash where you're supposed to rotate it and, and invert it during the wash. And then it's uh, uh, eight minutes in a bleach and then two minutes in a wash and then five minutes in a cleaner and then two minutes in a wash. And then you have to take the film out wow. of the canister and expose it to light. So you take it out of the spool and hold the film strip up to a hundred watt bulb and for 30 seconds per side of film, respool it up wet put it back in the canister, reuse the developer from the first time uh, for five more minutes, two more minutes wash, and then a five-minute fix, and then an eight-minute wash, and then you're good to go. Wow. (laughs) This is why I stand develop. And it (laughs) is an hour of standing in front of the sink uh, with your your stopwatch going at it um, from start to finish. But I got to tell you, the first roll I did, I shot a roll of the Scala in my uh, my French Telka six by nine, my Telka three, and seeing uh, six by nine landscape shots as black and white slides 
I just want to mount them on a light board. You know, it's like I'm going to create a frame where I put like a, you know, like a frosted piece of plexi up and a light source behind it and just, just use that for exhibiting them because they are absolutely luscious. I mean, these inky blacks, but there's detail in the blacks and uh, it really does not look like uh, even scanning it. It does not look like you're scanning negative film. Uh, It has a really cool look to it. And there's nothing uh, like slides, right? <laughs> no, there really isn't. There really isn't. Plus, there's this, that sort of jaw dropping, especially after having opened up the canister halfway through the developing process. And you hold it up to the light, and it's like this weird, milky yellow and white inverse of the image. Oh, wow. Uh, before you redevelop it and, re- and fix it. Huh, um, I'm scared, but intrigued at the same time. So maybe yeah. I'll have to give it a shot. Yeah. <laughs> it's really crazy, <laughs> but it works. Um, you know, so it's about it's about you know eight nine dollars a roll to develop it. But if you try to send off, if you've got old Scala film, you go to send it off. It's like twenty five dollars a roll to get it developed. And they're uh, not going to do that process for you, anyways, right? Uh, no, they will. There's there's like there's like one or two places left in the U.S. that will do black oh. and white reversal. Uh, oh. But it's it's pricey. Right, um, right. But boy, this is you know I've done you know I've done slide development. I've done enc development i've done you know all the black and white that you can imagine i've never done anything like this just the whole uh unspooling it and holding up to the light and having that that it's like a real trust me moment there is there is a wow factor i think anytime someone does you know whether it's slide film or you know black and white reversal and and like mark i i haven't jumped into it yet either and i really want to but i went ahead and bought 200 or about 100 feet of the super pan which like i said apparently is the old agfa scala which is cool because it also does you know it has as much infrared sensitivity as uh like the retro 400 or the the japan camera hunter and it's on that perfectly clear polyester stock so it just works it works perfectly fine as as black and white slide um wow. plus you could do black and white infrared slide which is Ooh. next <laughs> oh that would be beautiful oh my goodness <laughs> yeah that, that, that's my next experiment is i really i'm looking forward to doing that speaking about exper- experiments i did something for the first time and i i'm glad i had old chemicals uh you know still around i've been wanting to try film souping and so what i did is i got just a bottle of wine and poured some in uh, it was a roll of um kodak gold uh 200 I didn't, I don't, I didn't even remember what the, the shots or what that film, or what I shot with that film. So I just, just thought, well, whatever. And uh, I soaked it for 12 hours and then developed it as normal in old chemical. Well, no, I, I didn't. I stand developed it for 50 minutes at 68 degrees. And it's weird what happened. I was expecting these weird color shifts. And instead what I got was totally sepia images. Wow. Every single image was sepia. It was weird. Like it took all the, I guess, took all the variety of colors and left it with as a monochrome. I, I, I was just blown away. So I don't know if it was the wine or if it was the old chemicals or the stand developing. Maybe I should have just done one thing and then I could have <laughs> control your variables, you know. <laughs> uh, I imagine the acidity of the wine would have something to do. It has to because I've done old Kodak Gold and you just get muddy colors. With if you do it normally no 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 just normal so oh. the sepia had to have come from the wine is is like anthony said the acid that's my guess yeah. cool well we've hit we've hit an hour and a half um this has been an absolute fantastic show we've actually lost paul 
Uh, he he had to go to sleep to get his beauty rest. Um, but you know, I just wanted to you know say thank you guys for joining. It's always fascinating to hear from you guys, uh, Mike. You know, when you shoot that speed X, you know, definitely let us know. Even if you don't get a chance to join again, if you do, that's cool too. But send me some pictures. Uh, and I'm just really curious to see what your thoughts are on it. I mean, obviously, it's not going to live up to the to the reputation of, of a Rolly Flex or, you know, a Pentax 6.7. But at, at what you paid for it and, you know, the simplicity of that camera, it doesn't need to. Mario, as always, you know, it's, it's great to hear from you, too. You know, I, I enjoyed the last time you were on. And, you know, you're a fellow podcaster. Uh, one of these days, we'll have to have an all-podcast show. Uh, I know Mike Mike Gutterman's been wanting to talk to us and uh, get us on negative positives. There's just so many podcasts and just so little time. I know. <laughs> you know, I feel like we've kind of pushed Theo to the side. Let's give Theo the last yeah. word. There once was a ship that put to sea. The name of the ship was the Billy of Tea. The winds blew up. Her bow dipped down. Oh, blow. My bully boys blow. Oh, wow. That's really interesting, Theo. Soon may the Wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day, when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. Okay. <laughs> uh, Mark, as always, again, you know, thanks for joining. Glad to hear from you. Uh, one of these, you know, Mark recently got a CNC machine, right? Yep. Sure did. And, and, and we'll have to save that for another episode. I, I really wanted to ask Paul. I wanted to do it in last week's episode, too. He's picked up these really, really awesome estate sales, these lots that he's getting, crap that he's getting shipped to him from Texas. He He's teasing me with something that's arriving in the mail tomorrow. I mean, we, we could have a whole episode just talking to Paul about what he's got. Uh, and we, we've gone two episodes in a row uh, with, with so much great stuff to cover that we didn't get around to it. But um anthony any last words yeah paul got me with that as well i just today negotiated a uh a zeiss 51.7 for my uh my contacts s2 so okay. that's, that's coming from paul this week in the mail i saw yeah. that in his store <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that 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 that's ending up on on my camera paul's paul's definitely a great person to know but uh uh he he's a bad influence. <laughs> he's a bad influence <laughs> yeah yeah i almost went for the one four and i just i couldn't do it it's probably a good thing that shipping to australia is so high so that theo is not tempted isn't that right theo crikey shipping is high a sheila i once knew shipped me some shrimp on the barbie from the outback and it was defo high <laughs> all right you guys uh thanks again uh it's always been fun um next week is thanksgiving in the u.s so i don't know are we even going to do an episode or should we skip a week let's let's make the let's make the call here what do you guys think i'll be around i'll be around too i'm doing Same. a podcast next week anyways so <laughs> <laughs> well i guess then we will be next back next week with another exciting episode of the camerosity podcast thanks guys for joining you guys all have a good night Thank you. Good night. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye. There once was a ship that put to sea The name of the ship was a bully of tea The winds blew up her bowed up down Oh, below my bully boys blow <gasps> Soon may the Willowman come To bring us sugar and tea and rum One day when the tonguing is done We'll take our leave and go